Hey, what's going on, guys? Welcome to Get That Bread, a podcast discussing value investing strategies. Hey, what's going on, guys? It's been a while. Apologies. Uh, lots have happened and a lot has transpired uh, for us to do a lot of research. Ladies and gentlemen, I believe I have discovered the sage of San Antonio. Unfortunately, he might be a bootleg version of the Oracle of Omaha, but that remains to be seen and ultimately, it's pretty much up to your judgment. So his name is Sardar Biglari. Again, Sardar Biglari, who happens to be the chairman and CEO of Biglari Holdings, ticker symbol BH. I think this is probably one of the most unique situations I personally have come across given the nature of the CEO, especially in terms of how he's trying to engineer his own version of Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway, and also what Biglari has done with the capital structure of his company, BH, in short, uh, Biglari Holdings. So in short, the reason why I'm bringing this company to your attention is because the company trades at about a 50% discount from its investment portfolio alone, not including the company's four operating businesses. So in other words, if you add the value of the company's cash, its investment portfolio, which total approximately $663 million as of the uh, first quarter 2019 end, and then strip out all the company's debts, BH's net asset value is approximately $392 million. Now, what you need to know in calculating the market capitalization or the quoted price for the entire organization is that Glory Holdings owns a large portion of its own shares through two of its investment partnerships titled the Lion Fund LP and the Lion Fund 2 LP. So from an economic standpoint, the shares that Biglari Holdings owns through its investment partnerships, they behave much like treasury stock. In other words, they represent shares that you know the company had bought back from the market, uh, market meaning the stock market, that they haven't retired or canceled as of yet. So excluding those shares that Begori already owns of itself, the market capitalization of this business as of the date of this recording is $196 million. Now again, the net asset value of Beglory Holdings Investments, not including the operating businesses, is $392 million. So, you know, if you were to juxtapose that against the sticker price for the whole organization, that implies a, 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 a approximately 100% upside from current price levels uh, if you assume that prices will trade in one-to-one parity with its underlying investment assets. Now, if you're wondering, kind of scratching your head, okay, should the price trade at one-to-one parity with its underlying investment portfolio in the first place? Uh, And the answer to that is, uh, I think history can tell you that. Historically, over the last 10 years, the price of the entire organization or the market capitalization has historically traded at a meaningful premium to the net asset value of its por- of the company's portfolio. So, pretty interesting, huh? Have I got your attention? Okay, good. So let's move on and let's start unpacking this, uh, this opportunity in a meaningful way. Okay, quick comment though, before diving into the quote-unquote story behind this particular company, um, in the recent situation involving the stock, I think it's important to lay kind of the groundwork and give you a little, a little bit of background on the man, Sardar Buglari, 
and also the structure of the company. So based on an article uh, from 2012 from the New York Times titled Taking a Page from Buffett for His Own Path, Baglari first started his entrepreneurial endeavors while as a college student and as an undergrad. And he, he first started an inter- internet service provider company called INTX Networking with a friend, which later on in 1999, he sold for some undisclosed amount. I'm, I'm assuming it's a relatively meaningful amount, uh, which thereafter seeded Sardar Baglari's move into uh, in the investment management business, uh, where he both kind of established the Lion Fund LP at that time and then started investing into a restaurant chain called Western Sizzlin'. And so um, he took on a very activist approach where he tried to gain bore seats in order to be able to revitalize or reorganize the businesses he was involved with. And, you know, eventually after gaining control of Western Sizzlin, he got involved with Friendlies, uh, which he successfully was able to generate an 80% profit from within about a year's time. And then also uh, simultaneously eventually started gaining board seats uh, with Steak and Shake through a very aggressive uh, activist campaign. He, he denounced the previous management for Steak and Shake for their failed vision, quote unquote, failed vision, failed strategy, failed execution, and failed board. So he, you know, he would pretty much attack the company management teams that um, he would try to come and take control of. Ultimately, he acquired full ownership of Steak and Shake uh, Steak and Shake is a restaurant chain, by the way, for, for you folks who have never been there before. Um, it's an interesting chain. It's uh, kind of sounds like Shake and Bake <laughs> from Talladega Nights, but it's Steak and Shake. And so uh, ultimately, he acquired, again, yeah, he acquired full ownership of the restaurant and, and used that business as the primary vehicle for purchasing other businesses whole or making investments in the Comstock uh, in the Comstock market, so it was kind of like his vehicle for um, acquisitions, much like the way Warren Buffett kind of utilized Berkshire Hathaway um, in kind of transforming and reinventing that textiles business into the conglomerate holding company that is to, that it is today. Sardar, he he kind of how he started was by um, concentrating investments in the restaurant business and then utilizing these restaurant uh, businesses as cash cows for making investments elsewhere uh, across industries. And today, um, Berglari, he owns 55% of Berglari Holdings um, through both the Class A and Class B shares. So moving on to the company, Biglari Holdings, to give you a picture of the enterprise enterprise today, I think you first have to understand that the company is separated into two asset groupings, the operating business, and then there's the investment arm. And so you have to understand both um, branches of this business, be able to understand, okay, how do I get to um, some conceptualization of the intrinsic value of this business and what's going on with this particular company. So the operating business is composed of four wholly owned subsidiaries. Uh, I mentioned a few of them already, Steak and Shake and Western Sizzlin. Those are the restaurant businesses. Also, the Glory Holdings is involved with um, 
Insurance. It owns First Guard Insurance and its affiliated agency. And then also, I I was surprised to know this, and probably you'd be surprised to know it as well. But he also owns, or the company owns, Maxim Magazine. Broadly speaking, what's important to understand, though, is that is that historically, Steak and Shake has been BH's largest and arguably most critical asset. It's kind of been the lifeblood of all the, or not all, but meaningfully most of the capital inflows that allowed Sardar to be able to make additional investments into the various other industries and, and and the stocks that the, you know, the investment arm has been able to get involved with. So Western Sizzler and First Guard, while they're they're actually, if you could do a little digging, while they're actually great businesses, uh, they're not nearly as large as Steak and Shake in terms of earnings contribution, and, and so they're um, they haven't distributed much cash back to the parent for for Bilari to make investments. And also, just another quick thing to note is that First Guard has historically retained all of its earnings and cash flows to improve its capital strength, which that in turn allows the insurance, that particular insurance business to be able to uh, underwrite more business and not to cede its premiums to a reinsurer. And so because First Guard is now a part of uh, Bulgari Holdings, it's been able to uh, essentially grow the size of, of its scale in, in a pretty meaningful way over uh, the last five years. As for Maxim, uh, another quick note, it's uh, it's been largely an unprofitable business. Uh, Bulgari acquired Maxim in 2014. And has since invested, including you know the um, all prior accumulated operating losses, has pretty much invested about over forty million dollars. It just turned a profit of about a million dollars last year in two thousand eighteen. So that's kind of give you just a quick picture of the operating businesses of Baglory Holdings. Now, kind of moving on to the investment arm of the business. Um, Beglory Holdings allocates capital to Sardar's privately owned investment management business, Beglory Capital Corp., which in turn manages the the two funds that I had man- that I had referenced, the Line Fund and the Line Fund Two. So again, try to, try to imagine this. So uh, Beglory Holdings doesn't own Beglory Capital; it just simply hires Sardar's investment management company, Beglari Capital, to manage Beglari Holdings assets, which are housed underneath when within the line fund and the line fund two, two different uh, partnerships. So BH um, owns roughly about 90% of the assets within these two funds. And if you go ahead and take a look at the 13F filing, which is um, the SEC filing that kind of discloses all the components or the investments, the equity investments within a particular um, investment company. The most important asset within the partnerships, um, which Beglory Capital manages, is going to be Cracker Barrel Old Country, ticker symbol CBRL. Um, CBRL represented roughly about like 76% of all the assets within those two partnerships. And uh, like I said before, regarding the, co- the conversation on the market capitalization, BH owns its own shares through these partnerships. And so BH uh, represents about 22% of the assets within these two funds. So what is that? Like 98% of the assets are comprised of these two stocks, CBRL, which is Cracker Barrel Country, and BH, Beglory Holdings. He runs a very, very concentrated portfolio. 
And I think another thing to note regarding the this segment, this investment wing, is that thanks to Sardar's investments, he's been able to grow BH's net asset value per share over the last 11 years at a rate of 27% compounded. That's that's like Buffett level returns. However, again, that's considering you know the cash and investments investments alone. So if you were to consider book value per share and tangible book value per share growth over the same time period, the company has grown at a compounded rate of about 10%. So you know that the book value. The reason why I reference book value and tangible book value is because it's kind of more of a consolidated view of growth of that business, whereas that twenty-seven percent compounded is focuses specifically, um, more specifically on the investment business um, within Biglari Holdings. Okay, so now that I kind of laid that out, what's the story behind this particular stock? While you know Biglari who I call the Sage of San Antonio, is undoubtedly um, a talented and shrewd individual from my view. He's actually no Oracle of Omaha. He's no Warren Buffett. And to clarify what I mean, Beglari appears to have sown a lot of seeds of discord between himself and his shareholder base over this last decade, which I don't think is Buffett's approach. So first and most notably, beginning in 2013, Biglari started moving uh, in earnest uh, investment assets out of Biglari Holdings and into the Lion Fund, which is managed by, again, like I said, Sardar. Uh, in doing so, Sardar now entitled himself to 25% of investment profits above a hurdle rate of 6%. So that's kind of his compensation um, scheme for managing uh, capital underneath Sardar, uh, underneath his investment business, his privately owned investment business, Biglari Capital. In other words, if the portfolio generates returns above 6%, all the excess return, 25% of that excess return is pocketed by Sardar. So the reason why that's kind of controversial is because he moved assets which previously were not subject to any incentive fees into a structure that now solely benefits Sardar at the expense of shareholders. So more simply, he's charging a fee where previously there was no charge at all. It's kind of like, let's say, imagine a scenario where Warren Buffett decides to move uh, Berkshire Hathaway's $173, $176 billion portfolio into now Warren Buffett's privately owned Buffett partnership, where now he can capture incremental fees. No, you can't, right? Yeah, that's because Buffett would never do that, especially at the expense of shareholders. So that's that's exactly what Sardar has done with the investments um, that were previously at Biglar Holdings, and now he moved it into this new arrangement where he could kind of gain incentive fees or incentive compensation. Also, um, kind of more recently in 2018, uh, Glory Holdings market capitalizations you know even though it, even though the company's market capitalization declined some 55% the board elected to eliminate any uh, compensation cap over Sardar's salary um, so previously there was a compensation cap of about 10 million dollars including incentive pay but that's um, that's kind of all been put to the wayside which is kind of leaves investors scratching their heads because wait a second our stock price dropped 55% during this year and now you've 
now you have removed the salary cap. So it's kind of left investors kind of confused. And also Sardar implemented uh, a pretty unpopular dual class structure, the class A and the class B shares in early 2018, around the April timeframe. And this solidified Sardar's hold over BH, especially as it appears likely that uh, he's going to utilize the class B shares for future acquisitions. Something what you need to know, understand about the, the distinction between the class A share versus the class B share is that the class A, the class A share, it's, uh, it's entitled to the economic benefits of the company. Also, it's entitled to one vote per share. Whereas the class B shares, they're, um, they're entitled to one fifth of the economic benefits uh, as class A shares are, and there's no voting rights associated with these shares. So um, he he wanted to, like I said, he wanted to be able to like maintain his level of ownership in the business while leveraging the class B shares to maybe one day make future acquisitions. What that means is he could possibly dilute and issue more class B shares uh, to make a purchase later down the road. So these issues in conjunction with um, a lot of corporate governance concerns have kind of accorded him and his annual meeting the title The Fire Festival of Capitalism, which is, I think is super funny because for those of you who aren't familiar, it's a, it's a, fr- it's a fraudulent music festival in the Bahamas, which according to the BBC charged attendees up to $100,000. And it was just a disaster. And so, you know, kind of playing off of Buffett's, you know, Woodstock of Capitalism, his, which is the title accorded to his annual meetings, uh, Sardar's meetings by his own shareholders are called the Fire Festival of Capitalism. So there's um, his shareholder base is kind of um, they're not satisfied with this, with the company and the way Sardar's been managing the business, and it's kind of um, most exemplified with what has happened to the stock price. On top of these concerns, Stake and Shake uh, again the largest, most critical asset within Biglory Holdings. The, that restaurant's financial results have been rapidly deteriorating. So although this segment uh, owns approximately 413 restaurants and franchises an additional 213 units as of first quarter 2019 and that business has swung to an operating loss of $18.9 million during the first quarter alone of this year. That compares with full year 2018 operating losses of um, $10.7 million and a slim profit in 2017. Just keep in mind that prior to 2017, 2016, uh, all the way back to 2008, which is when Steak and Shake was acquired, this was a very healthy, very cash positive business. It was kind of, again, the vehicle that propelled Beglari Holdings to be able to make investments in other industries. Since 2016, Steak and Shake, uh, the business, has witnessed a significant financial downturn. Um, You've had millions of customers on an annualized basis no longer uh, visiting or eating at this particular restaurant. Uh, In addition to that, based on the most recent 10K, Steak and Shake, once uh, a really powerful cash cow for the parent company, can no longer distribute cash back to Beglory Holdings due to uh, debt covenants, certain restrictions on uh, or stipulations specified in the debts uh, of the restaurant chain, Steak and Shake. So, uh, furthermore, the time frame for a turnaround for this particular business is somewhat limited, largely due to the fact that Steak and Shake has a term loan facility 
uh, with an aggregate principal amount of $220 million coming due in March 2021. So Sardar has, up until that time frame, to figure out how he can turn this restaurant business around. And given that the company is reportedly shuttering approximately 60 restaurant locations, at least temporarily or allegedly temporarily, thus far this year, um, more losses are likely to occur uh, and perhaps could accelerate this year and into next year, putting into question, okay, truly how solvent is this business? And what's kind of exacerbating Sardar's turnaround effort is the fact that managers across the chain have filed lawsuits against the company for unpaid overtime. So one lawsuit in the St. Louis area requires Steak and Shake to pay out an additional $7.7 million to 286 managers who have not been fairly compensated. Unfortunately, it's kind of like when it rains, it pours and it's looking... um, it's looking very difficult for this particular segment of Biglari Holdings. The corporate governance issues taken together with Steak and Shake's deteriorating results have catalyzed a really meaningful and significant downturn in BH's share price. So since the introduction of BH's dual class in April of 2018, the class A shares have declined 45%, while the class B shares have declined 53% as of the date of this recording. Interestingly enough, with all of that pessimism baked in, however, the price decline has opened up what appears to be a significant discount to the company's underlying net asset value. Uh, And that net asset value is focusing on the portfolio alone, not including the four operating businesses like like I specified earlier. So moving on to kind of the valuation, um... So my valuation approach, I took kind of a a shortcut, admittedly. So as previously stated, I all I considered in valuing uh, Big Larry Holdings is the cash and the investments netting out total debts of the whole organization to arrive at a net asset value of $392 million. Uh, I did not, again, I did not consider the operating businesses. So technically, if you want to do a more rigorous and actually a more proper, thorough valuation of this business, you would have to conduct what's called a sum of the parts analysis, along with other valuation approaches if, you, if you'd like, the discounted cash flow or DCF. So regarding the sum of the parts valuation approach, if in fact you want to go that route and, and do that on your own time, you would have to establish comparables for each of the restaurant insurance and magazine businesses, and then also consider the value of the company's investments in the lion the lion funds uh, and then lastly you'd strip out the total debt to get to nav uh, one thing to note is the reason why i didn't do this on this episode is because um it's very time consuming and i and for the sake of time i just wanted to get you this content and this episode to you guys as soon as possible just wanted to throw that out there if you do decide that you want to conduct some of the parts analysis, you'll notice that it's maybe a little little difficult to do so because the operating businesses in aggregate are not profitable. And this is largely due to the fact that um, the company's largest business, Steak and Shake, it's overshadowing, uh, the losses at Steak and Shake are overshadowing the the pretty, pretty good results at the other three profitable segments. So this is kind of like the, now the perfect segue into the risks. And so I want to kind of dive into some of the risks that I think you have to consider if you wanted to think about this particular investment opportunity. So despite the, you know, 
valuation disconnect and the perceived 100% upside potential uh, that you know investors could possibly realize based on uh, current price levels as, as of the date of this recording, uh, I think the, the foremost risk that people are going to want to consider is what happens in the event that Stake and Shake liquidates. And because it could have a meaningful consequence in Glory's wider operating mo- model. So before diving, but before even diving into the liquidation scenario, Sadar could expend too much capital in an effort to, you know, save what is inevitably a dying business. This would, you know, if he if he reinvests too much capital into um, Stake and Shake, which ultimately may fail. You know, that's going to eat away at and diminish the net asset value and in turn the return potential of this particular company. And now, you know, moving on to this the scenario where, okay, that restaurant does liquidate, you know, that that would really limit the range and the optionality that's available to Sardar when he's managing Bagari Holdings. So the like I said, the other operating businesses, Western Sizzlin, um, First Guard, and Maxim, they have not been enormous capital contributors back to the parent company for the glory to make alternative investments. And so, um, furthermore, you know, this is just a kind of a side note. Um, because First Guard, the insurance business, has been housed underneath the Glory Holdings, uh, and due to the prior capital strength of the Glory Holdings. First Guard has been able to expand its scale in a way that it wasn't able to do so when it was a standalone business. It used to seed a lot of premiums that it had written to reinsurers, whereas once it was now under a stronger uh, and a large organization, BH, it used to be able to you know grow earnings by not seeding insurance to the reinsurance companies. Now, if BH is um, financial situations diminishes in a real, really meaningful way due to a possible liquidation associated with Stake and Shake. You know that business, First Guard, may now may no longer be as profitable as it once was to the wider company because it'll probably have to revert back to seeding uh, a meaningful portion of its insur- um, its premiums to a reinsurer. So it po- it could possibly have a negative consequence on First Guard. Lastly, and Probably most critically, once Stake and Shake is out of the picture, if Stake and Shake gets out of the picture, Sardar, in an effort to acquire another cash cow, could sell all of BH's treasury shares and issue more Class B stock, thereby diluting shareholder interests. By doing so, you know the upside potential gets eliminated almost entirely. Um, other risks involve, you know, Sardar finding more ways of increasing his compensation at the expense of shareholders. And then uh, another one that kind of comes top of mind is if Cracker Barrel, which is um, the, the largest investment in the partnerships, were to materially deteriorate in terms of its financial results, its stock could meaningfully decline as well, which in turn would negatively impact Biglari Holdings' uh, net asset value or NAV calculation. Okay, so now that I specified that, this situation, like I said, is interesting nonetheless. And the reason why I say that is because here is a rebuttal to the main risk that I just specified regarding Stake and Shake. The parent company, right, Biglari Holdings, it doesn't guarantee Stake and Shake's debts, which, you know, 
according to some sources, stands at about $184 million. Based on my math um, of the debt's amortization schedule, I think it's closer to $209 million. I might be wrong. Uh, but either way, if Stake and Shake liquidates, as far as I understand, Sardar could simply just walk away from the debt obligation and not pay due to the fact that Glory Holdings is bankruptcy remote. It doesn't have to pay that obligation amount. So it kind of puts into question, okay, so this debt obligation of somewhere between 184 to 209 million, which is factored into my NAV calculation, could arguably be no obligation at all. If this were true, NAV should adjust up considerably. So, you know, factoring in uh, also the fact that uh, allegedly, Buglari, uh, Sardar Buglari is going to invest an incremental $40 million to restructure Steak and Shake by kind of, yeah, restructure Steak and Shake to revitalize the restaurant chain. And then also on top of that, you know, considering the the lawsuit um, with its managers where Buglari Holdings is now probably going to, or Steak and Shake is now going to have to pay $8 million to its managers. You know, after considering those factors, BH's NAV still increases because you're now taking out that debt obligation to $528 million from my prior $392 million estimate. Again, as of the date of this recording, the market capitalization for Beglory Holdings is $196 million. So, you know, if you're if you're kind of chewing through this and you're wondering, okay, wait a second, if Steak and Shake does liquidate, um, he's still going to have to try to find some, Beglory is still going to try to have to find another cash generating company. So someone could ask, well, what about the possible sale of treasury stock and the dilution of shares to acquire another cash generating business? Which is a great question. Now, if Sardar utilizes that treasury stock to finance another acquisition, that means shares outstanding increases to approximately 621,000 from 346,000 previously. That means at current price levels as of the date of this recording, BH's market capitalization is actually closer to approximately $351 million instead of the previously stated $196 million. So even with the dilution of shares um, associated with the possible sale of treasury stock that are held inside the Lion Funds, it still looks like there's 51% upside potential. Now, let's assume I'm wrong about the nature of Stake and Shake's debt and the the parent comp and the, and the parent company is still liable, even though the 10K filing states otherwise. Uh, when factoring in the incremental investments, the $40 million, the lawsuit, $8 million, and the possible shareholder dilution, the NAV calculation is $344 million versus a post-diluted market capitalization of $351 million. So what's the downside risk here? The downside risk is about 2%. So, you know, now given all this information, right, which based on my estimates, it appears that there's about 2% downside risk versus an upside potential of 51% to about 100%. What do you think? Also, consider the man, Sardar Beglari, and his track record. Uh, it, you know. Oh, and by the way, given the dual-class structure where Class B shares are entitled to one-fifth of the economic interest as Class A shares, there's an arbitrage opportunity of approximately 11% as of today's recording. 
So another interesting thing to consider. I'd love to hear your thoughts. I'm kind of leaving this a little bit open ended. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not giving a thesis. Essentially, I'm just kind of delivering the situation, and I want. And I'm hoping that you guys can think for yourself. Okay, is this an investable, a compelling enough investable opportunity? There's some hairy things about this thing, but I. But there's uh, there's that upside potential there. And so, is this? Is there a large enough margin of safety here? And I'd love to hear your thoughts. And I'd love to, yeah, I'd love for you to kind of give me your comments and to share your comments and your thoughts. So um, don't hesitate to leave your thoughts in the, you know, in the comment section of um, of the podcast. You know, if you're wondering um, why the heck does why the heck does Stephen constantly focus on these no names that no one's ever heard of? Why doesn't he talk about Tencent? Why doesn't he talk about Google or Tesla or, or anything like like or anything else, or any kind of companies along those lines? Well, I want to direct your attention to a quote by Warren Buffett. And he said, the best decade was the 1950s. I was earning 50% plus returns with small amounts of capital. You have to turn over a lot of rocks to find these little anomalies. You have to find the companies that are off the map, way off the map. No one will tell you about these businesses. You have to find them. That's actually, I think, the the main reason why I like to devote most of my attention towards these so-called no-name companies. And so, you know, usually that's where I think you'll find more mispricing, relatively speaking, compared to the these ultra-large caps that are always talked about on CNBC, where possibly hundreds hundreds of thousands of eyes are on them. And and so that's kind of why I want to talk about these weird small little opportunities and so yeah with that i kind of want again i'm leaving it kind of open-ended i really do want to hear your thoughts and i'm hoping that we kind of open up a dialogue where yeah there's an exchange of ideas between uh, you guys and me and and hopefully collectively we can all get better at this investment opportunity or at investing overall we have similar content available on our YouTube channel called Get That Bread Value Investing. So definitely check us out there as well. If you thought this episode was interesting or you learned something new, um, we'd really appreciate it if you hit the subscribe button, give us uh, five-star reviews or give us some feedback and I'd really appreciate it. So with that, I'll, I'll talk to you guys on the next episode. All right, later guys. The opinions expressed in this podcast reflects the opinions of the presenter at the time they were made and are subject to change any time after the date of a podcast's production without notice. These opinions are not intended to be a forecast of future events, a guarantee of future results, or investment advice. This podcast is for educational purposes only. While the statements made in this podcast is based on publicly available information and is believed to be accurate as of the date given, no representation is made with regard to its accuracy or completeness. This podcast and the affiliated content are neither an offer nor a solicitation to buy or sell securities. The presenter and its affiliates may directly hold securities mentioned in this material.